Welcome. You're listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM. I'm your host, Sanaya Sampson-Hill. As a whole, MIT is looking to connect with the rest of the world in innovative ways that bring change. Students are a crucial part of that mission. Today you get to hear from two MIT undergraduates who are committed to inspiring their community to learn more about Africa. Also in this episode, we hear from our own faculty. It's probably no surprise that a country's response to a pandemic is correlated with the social norms of that country. At a recent panel, professors share insights on how culture has played a role in a country's shared response to the pandemic. The Africa Learning Circle, or ALC, is the academic and innovation branch of the MIT African Students Association set up to strengthen the spirit and culture of innovation, principled entrepreneurship, and rigorous study of the African continent's past, present, and future. Its mission is to create a platform that equips our community to put its powerful ideas into hands-on innovation in line with the MIT Mind and Heart motto. It is a 100% student-led initiative that does not shy away from difficult conversation topics. In this segment, we will hear from incoming ALC Chair and Chemical Engineering Senior, Andrea Orji, and outgoing ALC Chair and Chemical Engineering Junior, Ayomukun Ayodeji, about the purposes, intentions, and outcomes of ALC. They are interviewed by MIT Africa Program Managing Director, Ari Jakobovitz. So let me start, and either one of you can answer this question, is um, how did, you know, what is the Africa Learning Circle and how did it get started? So the African Learning Circle is essentially, I want to say like a gathering that we have every week where we kind of think about and discuss different topics that relate to the African continent. And so from week to week, that topic can change or we can maybe have a series of discussions surrounding a specific topic. But the idea essentially, I think, especially for the people who founded ALC, is that we can discuss these different issues and eventually create different innovations that can actually like, be implemented in different African countries. Um, so we talk about things ranging from like gender relations to uh, business relations with other countries in the world. Um, we talk about current events of all different sorts. Really like any topic that is of interest to students within ALC can be discussed. And it's a really great way to like hear other people's perspectives, both from people who have lived on the continent or who have moved here for education reasons or who maybe are like first generation um, African-Americans. And when you, when you started, were you trying to fill a particular gap that you felt was missing in sort of the bigger conversation or in terms of on-campus MIT programming? What were you really trying to accomplish? So ALC is relatively kind of new. It started in 2017, all semesters. And I remember um, having a conversation with the, the original founders. And for them, um, it started out as an initiative from the MIT African Student Association. And the, the sense was to just create a platform where African students felt like they could talk about issues that, um, that they're not really hearing as much as about on campus. Something that could like, you know, remind them of what it means to, to grow up on the continent or to be interested in things going up on the continent and to figure out what as MIT students they can do about it. So to like boost that spirit of innovation. Um, I guess the gap, that was trying to be filled at that point was just like the conversation starting, but also just like the drive. Um, for many of us, quite a few who are international students, we felt 
I'm a bit disconnected from home. Um, so the platform itself was also just a way for us to feel connected to home. The discussions that we have every week, that one hour, one hour, 30 minutes, where we're talking, where we're exploring, where we're diving into topics. I feel like a lot of students feel that connection to home much stronger. Um, and it does help bring the community together. One of the things I noticed was sort of an emphasis on having conversations that you may have not had in the past, you may have not had the opportunity in the past because you haven't had this sort of gathering of people to bring these conversations to the forefront. And you know, one of the one something that was particularly salient to me in a conversation I had um, with a Kenyan computer science student, I'm sure you know. I asked her, you know, if you were to go back to your high school, what subject would you teach? You know, she's a computer science student, electrical engineering, so I thought maybe something along those lines. But she actually said history. Um, and she felt that there was a major gap and that she often looked at these conversations that were happening on campus about um, African history and Africa and, and sort of global or world history and the way those two are interconnected. Another sort of anecdotal experience I had was a Cameroonian student who I'm sure you know, who graduated recently, you know, grew up actually learning that uh, this river that was right by his house was discovered by the Portuguese. And I think one of the interesting things he used to always say was, um, I was told the water where my grandmother got her, uh, the river where my grandmother got her water was invented or was discovered by the Portuguese. So, you know, I think there are some really interesting conversations um, that I've sort of witnessed around basically history and um, just sort of in general, like Africa and world affairs. Um, so how do, you, how do you dive into those topics and how do you, how do you touch on those topics as, the, as they come up in your group? All right, I can, I can also um, touch a bit on that with regards to like past sessions. So I think, I think the main focus is getting out what the people want to figure out, what they want to explore. Um, so usually like the starting session would be trying to get people's ideas as to what they think ALC should be. Cause we feel like each year it might change slightly. Um, the vision, the method at which we like conduct discussions, the guests that we try to like um, invite. So getting the people's feedback, like in terms of people within the community, people that we feel like want to make the most out of AOC, asking them what topics they want to explore or what they're interested about, I'm interested in. Those are usually like the, the foundation on which we build AOC for the semester. Um, however, this is like not set in stone because we might have like, okay, the first meeting, these are the list of topics, we have an initial plan. But things might happen over the semester or over the year. Um, and suddenly a topic that was not even on the list might become more uh, prevalent to talk about. Because the, the, another point of AOC is just to, is to meet the needs of the people at the given period in time. Um, so I remember um, earlier this semester when the um, current US administration expanded the travel ban to include some African countries. We felt like this was something that directly affected many of the members in the community. And so we decided to have um, a discussion on Africa, immigration and travel ban. Obviously like looking at the big picture, but also trying to speak about what, what happened and how that affects us as students and how that would affect um, 
future African students trying to come to the US to study. So things like this, we, we try to make sure that we're keeping our eyes open um, and also like just listening about what is happening in the bigger picture. Cause we wanna make sure that every member feels the opportunity to be heard. And I think um, that ends up shaping how ALC changes over time. Um, another thing is like, if we find that our members are becoming very interested in, you know, innovation, technology, startups, um, the guests that we invite tend to either be like experts in those fields or already like settled in industry. So we've had people from um, like the Haram Bands, we've had Africa 50, we've had some private equity fund um, senior partners come to like talk to us about it. And I think it does spark interesting conversations because even someone that isn't interested in those things have an opportunity to learn. Um, I don't know if Andrew wants to add anything about how I guess it's going to change in the like near future. Yeah, I think those are all really, really good points. That's generally how we've kind of picked topics uh, so far. And I think moving forward, it's going to be really, really important to, I think this is something that IO kind of already started this past year, but continuing to try to tie in that piece of like history as well, because ultimately, like, I guess if you want to work eventually one day on the African continent, there are like things that you're going to have to understand, I think. Um, and so that part of that is like understanding, okay, how do these different organizations, like whether they're like private investment companies or people trying to do their own startups, how do they work in those different settings? Um, and like, what do I need to know about the community that I'm going to be working in? So I think something I want to try to do this coming year is get people to maybe read more like, literature by African writers, whether that those be like history based or not, just to get a better understanding of, I guess, where they want to go and why they want to go there. And what are some of the barriers that they might face when thinking about the different systems that have been put into place by outside actors in the place that they're intending to work. Um, and I think that's a really big thing that we're going to have to continue to like tie into the different innovations that we want to, and entrepreneurship opportunities we want to get interested in. And how do you prepare uh, people to participate in these sessions? Because I know there's some readings and videos that you might send out. How do you, how do you go about thinking about curating that content? Um, I guess I can kind of talk about this, but I should probably add some stuff after. Um, we basically send out different readings or articles as well as videos beforehand. Um, and then I guess like I've only run two meetings now. So personally, I would just kind of jump through all the materials and start to make questions from that. So whenever the conversation starts, maybe I start with an opening question and then let people take it wherever they need to go. But if it comes to a standstill in the conversation, that's when I can kind of go back to those questions um, and try to spur a conversation that I think is relevant to um, the topic at hand. Um, but moving forward, something I think could be interesting to do I'm kind of trying to compile a document of different articles as well as books that might be interesting for people to read so that if they want deeper background on whatever topic we're discussing that week, they can go to that list and kind of see like, oh, these things also relate to this topic. And maybe if I have time over the summer or over a break, I can read this book and get a little bit um, deeper into the topic. How have you seen some of your conversations that carry on over outside of the sort of ALC meeting? Because some of these are really big topics like, you know, China's interaction with Africa, right? This is like something big that I know 
a lot of people are thinking about all the time and uh, relationship between different black identities around the world. These are big conversations. How have you seen those play out sort of in people's lives and um, outside of the ALC? Because I think ultimately, like, you know, you want to you want to really have these rich conversations influence people's, uh, thoughts and decisions. Yeah, um, I can speak a bit about that. So um, I think I personally just love it when it's awesome having a discussion within the room and then maybe like a day after, a couple of days after, you're chatting with another person, like a friend within the community, and they basically just like revisit the discussion because it never really stops. And that's, I think that's the point of ALC. We can't really contain all our discussion within an hour, within an hour, 30 minutes. Some of these are like years, centuries of like um, information, of discourse, of what is the, what's the cool thing to do? What's, what's, the, what's the thing that people should like focus on? Um, so what we try to do is to make sure that the conversation is never completely closed and people can feel comfortable to open it. Um, I guess like a personal anecdote would be when we were dealing with like the Beyond Menelin series, which was like a multi-part discussion that was supposed to unpack both African and Black and African diaspora identities. Um, and I remember speaking with a friend after and trying to like figure out how that also sort of mirrors itself within MIT, um, within the African and Black communities at MIT and how we can see like slight gaps and that how that is just like a very, like a mirror image of what's happening in like the global stage. So I, I do feel like most of these conversations end up carrying on. Um, and another really cool thing is that some of these end up turning into like innovative, cool projects. Um, and I think like, this is also another personal anecdote. I, my freshman summer, the project I worked on, the education project that came out of, um, that came out of like the entire freshman year was actually like started during an AOC discussion. Um, we had invited um, a young lady from Nigeria who was working on um, a project essentially catering towards kids that were from disadvantaged homes and didn't have access to educational resources. And I remember speaking with a couple of other friends, also freshmen at the time that had attended the session and were like, it would be really cool if we could do something like this. Um, and little did I know that that would end up turning into um, a Davis Peace Project project that happened over the summer. So it's, it's awesome because AOC in itself sparked that um, innovative light in me. And I think it has for a lot of members. Like we, we speak about things, but the idea is that we want to remind people that it's, it's possible to take what is spoken about during a session outside, um, either as continuing the discussion or as turning it into a project. Andrew, do you have any any experience with um, conversations manifesting outside of the group in ways that he's described, either personally or for people around you? Yeah, I've definitely, I think this year, so I went to ALC my freshman year. I didn't go quite as much sophomore year because of conflicts, but I think this year I definitely noticed much more attendance from people who were like first generation Africans or even like Caribbean students as well, as well as um, African-Americans who are descendants of slaves. And I think that's really important because it's keeping the conversation going, kind of like Iowa said, between these different groups, because there's definitely like been tension on campus at different points in time. 
Um, but I think like, especially with the Melanin series that happened this semester, I saw people being more willing to interact with each other and like engage in those discussions and just like ask questions to try and understand each other. Um, on top of that, I think I've also seen, oh, I have a friend who I think from these discussions has ended up starting to like send me personally podcasts about like trying to understand race relations in America. And like, he's somebody who has lived in Nigeria his whole life, right? And came here just for school. And so just to see that shift where it's like, now that person themselves is invested in this discussion as much as anybody who was born here, I think is really exciting. And I feel like before MIT, I didn't necessarily have this understanding that I could do things before I like had certain degrees or something like that nature. But being in ALC has taught me personally, like at any point in time, if you're willing to put in the work and effort for it and really try to like find the resources, which MIT definitely has to offer, um, then you can like create projects on your own and like really try to implement them. And I've seen that like with IELTS project, as well as with some other friends who have been in ALC and like are starting their own companies or doing projects for the summer that they've created on their own. Um, and I think it's like really inspiring. Like it gives you a sense that you don't have to wait to start doing the things that are important to you. I think it's interesting just how it's named in terms of, you know, a learning circle. It's not Africa discussion circle. It's not Africa conversation circle. It's specifically Africa learning circle. And it seems like a very intentional choice, right? And it's like this process of self-learning. Um, have you ever, this is like a totally student-led initiative, right? I mean, you haven't had faculty doing this, or I mean, maybe they advise in some capacity, but am I correct? Like, this is totally a student-led initiative. Yes, it is. It is mainly student-led. Can you talk more about maybe why that was, uh, well, how you thought of it, or why it was named Learning Circle? Um, so this this actually this came out of um, again like a conversation with one of the the like starting like founders of ALC, and I think I think the understanding is that number one we're all students, um, and a lot of us did come to MIT to get something out of it, like which is mainly like knowledge, right? And number two, we're also not we're not Einstein. We don't know every single thing slash understand everything in minute detail. There are people coming from different backgrounds. Some people have come from the continent, so they have that perspective. Some people have lived in the US for all their lives, so they have that perspective. And the idea is that alone, we can't really see the full picture of anything. Um, but together, it's possible to you know, view things through different lenses and come out with a whole new perspective that you didn't really think you would have on an issue. And I think that's, that's the idea behind even like the circle part of the name, right? Um, there's, there's an African proverb that says, if you want to go quickly, go alone. But if you want to go far, move together. And that's the idea of like the circle, not being like a tree, not being like a, a single line, but like everybody holding hands um, and trying to come to a, not necessarily just one conclusion, but trying to understand where each person in the circle lies. Um, if there is one link that's broken, then it's not a circle anymore. Um, so something that we try to emphasize is having respect for every other person in the room and for every other opinion or idea that comes out. Um, and being able to discuss that without feeling slighted or feeling um, as if your opinion doesn't matter. I think, I think another, another thing that comes into play is um, as students, 
we there, we don't want to have the discussions just being like you know surrounding the things that we already had as pre as misconceptions or like anything that we have thought before we most often than not we want to leave the discussions with something new in terms of knowledge so that's why we really try to focus on getting people that we feel are either already experts in certain fields and um i think andrew can talk a bit more about this but we we're looking to i guess invite a bit more faculty or grad students people that whose research is actually like the theme that we're talking about and can help shed some light on some of the key issues that we can't really see um, being undergrads and being students and you know trying to like look at the thing as a whole um, I don't know if Andrea wants to add a bit more yeah I could probably talk about possibly having more faculty come into it um, I think there are a lot of faculty doing very very interesting research on different African countries um, and we haven't necessarily had them at meetings yet but I know that I've had personal conversations with like um, Danielle Woods and Professor Alma Doe as well, who have heard about ALC and been like, oh, that's such an interesting like thing that you guys are taking on. And they would, for example, be people who would love to come and talk to us or talk with us. And, you know, if we can have that perspective of people who are actually doing research surrounding things like um, global racism, global class structures that are extremely relevant to anything happening on the continent, I think it would be really, really enriching. Yeah, I think it's interesting because those two professors you just mentioned are both uh, alumni too. Uh, yeah, yeah, they are. <laughs> you know, they're maybe they're they're seeing something that they wish they had when they were mm -hmm. students. Um, I, my final question um, is: so you're both starting uh, to be engineers, chemical engineers, Frank, both of you. Um, how do you think this this learning circle, this sort of that you've created has made you a better engineer? I mean, I can try to answer that question. That's very interesting. I hadn't thought about it in that way before, but I think one thing that ALC introduces to people, and that is definitely something that we're trying to focus on as well in the coming year, is investigating everything even if you think you already know it so like there's something that i a bunch of members actually brought up where they were like sometimes it feels like we're in a discussion and we're kind of like an echo chamber we're all like there are certain things that you can look at and be like oh obviously this is the right way to look at this thing right and so you don't necessarily question it as deeply as you should um but I think it's very important too, because even if you think you understand why somebody brought up a point, um, there might be something deeper beyond it that you could never like think of on your own. And I think that definitely applies to engineering where they, especially in chemi, honestly, will just throw things at you on the board and you're looking at it and like, oh, X plus two equals X plus two, because obviously that's what's written on the board. I look at it in this way, that's fine. But then you get to an exam and you're like, oh, I have to be able to think about it in this way in order to synthesize from that point and get this, understand this question. And I think like that idea of trying to be able to deeply learn is extremely rooted in being a better engineering student as well. And I don't know if I can say for sure that being an ALC this past year has improved my chemi experience, but from sophomore year to junior year, there was a difference for sure. And <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if that 
trying to think more deeply helped me. You know, maybe something that you, you know, might not experience in the classroom, but as you go out into like the world and you, you know, you have a broader vision on solving some of these problems. And I think would be really advantageous. Ayo, did you have something you wanted to add? Um, it's, I guess, I guess this, this, this is, I don't know whether this is a direct linkage, but I definitely know that being in LC has, has made me like a better listener. And I'm pretty sure that um, in terms of, I guess, future engineering classes, but also when I get into industry, I'm going to end up working in teams. And a very, very good, you know, component of any, of any team is good communication, but also good listening. Um, being in LC the past year, um, first like being an attender and then helping moderate sessions this year, I think has definitely given me that, you know, patience that it requires to, to sit down and actually listen to what a person is saying. You can hear, but listening is very different because you, you need to try to see things from their point of view. Um, and it's, it's very interesting because I was, I was in a, um, a project class this semester and I was working with, with students who were like grad students and I was the only undergrad. Um, and I felt, I actually felt very intimidated. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to you know, share my opinions. Like I'm an undergrad, I best just listen. And I remember, I remember for some reason, just you know, feeling that the same desire I feel in AOC sessions when I want to share an opinion um, or when I want to comment on something. I just remember when we were meeting up, just feeling that urge to do that and listening to that urge. And I was like, this is very interesting because the dynamic completely changed from, oh, it's just us grad students and we happen to have an undergrad to the team to being like, we're a full team and every member is important. Um, so definitely, I feel like ALC has given me that, that perspective that my opinion counts, but also the opinions of everybody else in the room. Um, and I don't know what shape or form it would take in like my engineering life, but I'm pretty sure like that is a very, very important like skill to, to have and to try to cultivate. People who show no signs of illness may still be able to transmit COVID-19. The Massachusetts Department of Public Health recommends wearing a well-fitting cloth mask or other face covering in public spaces, including grocery stores and pharmacies. You can learn more about face covering guidelines by reading updates from the Department of Public Health on the mass.gov website. Your town or city's website may have further information for residents, including local requirements or guidelines regarding face coverings. In an earlier episode, we introduced the STAR Forum, a series of talks hosted by the MIT Center for International Studies. The center brings in professionals from academics, policymakers, and journalists to talk about international issues. The global response to the COVID-19 pandemic has been extremely varied, and in the STAR Forum, the panelists were compelled to examine how these differences have manifested and how responses tie into the cultures of the countries and regions. We'll first pick it up with Suzanne Berger, MIT's inaugural John M. Deutsch Institute professor, to talk about France and its response. Uh, I'm a uh, longtime French France watcher, and uh, as I was packing up my books to close my MIT office last March, I thought to myself, let's see what France can do with this. I thought that COVID was exactly the kind of crisis that France should excel in managing. In the first place, France has an excellent national 
health service that covers all citizens. It has world-class medical research and laboratories like the Pasteur Institute that specialize in the development and commercialization of vaccines. MIT has strong collaborations with French medical and biological research. In fact, many of our MISTI students have interned in those laboratories and we know and respect them. Uh, France has a strong central government with practically no possibilities for regions or cities to defy national policies in the way that we see in the United States. And finally, there are strong cultural norms in France that usually work to strengthen the hand of higher authorities. A French sociologist, Michel Crozier, in a book called The Bureaucratic Phenomenon that was published 50 years ago, first described these norms in a study of French factories. And what he observed was that the French are very reluctant to accept the authority of peers. When problems come up on the factory floor or in a social organization or in neighborhood life, people are usually quite unwilling to accept a decision that would grant uh, some of their peers the authority to resolve the problem locally. Instead, almost always, problems get pushed up, uh, up in an organization towards a more distant authority, an authority that feels safer exactly because it has less personal and specific information about individuals. Having conflicts resolved by distant authority feels safer to the French. So one should have anticipated that the French would feel right about national authority making the rules about masks and social distancing and testing. And not only that that would be right and legitimate, but that it would be the best possible uh, solution. And finally, I think the French did see this from the very beginning as a national challenge, a challenge in which they would be tested and compared to other nations. And above all, uh, as always, the French were thinking that they might be tested and compared uh, to Germany. Uh, and so it, uh, one of the uh, interesting facts was that whereas the rest of the world was reading a book by a Frenchman, The Plague by, by Camus, the French themselves were reading a book uh, called The Strange Defeat, which was about the defeat of the French in, uh, in 1940, uh, facing the Germans. So the French did see this as a national challenge. And despite, what's interesting is that despite all of these factors, which should have made for good outcomes, or at least for less bad outcomes, France has had among the worst of outcomes in Europe, despite having had quite a lot of lead time and advance warning and having been able to watch the disease ravage Northern Italy, France has had among the worst European outcomes with 30,000 deaths in a population of 67 million. In contrast to Germany, which has had 9,000 deaths in a population of 83 million. So I think the question we wanna answer is what went wrong here? Uh, and um, 
I think uh, when we start to think about that problem, it's important to recognize that the French government of President Emmanuel Macron and Prime Minister uh, Edouard Philippe started from a bad point in their relations <clears throat> with the French public. The Gilets Jaunes, the, the Yellow Vest protests were still very vivid in the public mind. And there have been even more recent big strikes against proposed changes in national pension and retirement rules. But still in all, at the beginning of the COVID crisis in mid-March, a survey found that 55% of the French <clears throat> had confidence that the government would be able to manage the crisis. That number started falling rapidly. And by the end of April, only 39% were confident in government. So what went wrong? Well, first of all, it turned out that the national stockpiles of masks had been not only depleted, but destroyed. Of the 600 million masks that were there in 2018, only 100 million were found to be viable, in good shape, and others had been destroyed. The Minister of Health at the time had tried to have uh, supplies replenished, but her request was turned down as excessive, even ridiculed. Uh, currently, there's a parliamentary inquest into what happened, uh, and they're not really yet able to figure out whether any replenishing was ordered or ever took place. And at the same time that the news about the failures of national provision leaked out, the government started issuing multiple and confusing directives about wearing masks. Initially, the government said masks would not protect the wearer, but maybe should be worn anyway to protect others. Then the government said sternly that masks really all should be left for health workers, uh, but in any event, that there were enough masks for everyone. That was a claim that the French could easily verify was not true, simply by going to a pharmacy and trying to buy one. And then the canny French began to wonder why it was that a mask could protect a health worker, but not themselves. So by early May, a survey found that 76% of the French believed that the government was lying about masks. And so confidence all this time falling, falling. And then another rumor spread. And that was the rumor that there was a simple, cheap cure for COVID, but that the government was hiding the facts about it because powerful business interests in the pharmaceutical industry wanted more expensive drugs to be used. And these powerful pharmaceutical interests had captured government decision makers. So there was a conspiracy against the cheap, available cure. The simple cheap cure was, you've guessed it, hydroxychloroquine, Plaquenil, President Trump's favorite COVID remedy. Uh, in the case of France, however, the person who was pushing hydroxychloroquine was quite a famous scientist, a medical researcher, Professor Didier uh, Roll a doctor located in Marseille who had observed improvement with a very small number of patients 
when he administered hydroxychloroquine. Nothing like a random controlled trial. Dr. Rawl had an unusual career as a scientist since he had the largest number of publications of any French scientist, and he was among the top dozen number of uh, scientists uh, cited in scientific publications. Perhaps one should also notice uh, that 25% of those citations were self-citations. <clears throat> but in any event, because of his numbers and the way in which French research funding is administered, Dr. Rault had been able to bring lots of research funding to Marseille. Even more important, he had a number of powerful local politicians on his side. And so as the controversy gained steam, right-wing parties also rallied to his side. And the polarization, which we've seen divide the United States over how to deal with COVID, took form in France too, in the shape of a fight over science, scientific method, and drugs. So what can we conclude from this? Well, first of all, what are the French concluding? I think they are concluding that essential commodities need to be produced in France. And the government has just begun by negotiating with a really pressuring four French pharmaceutical companies to start making uh, Tylenol in France. Masks and swabs will also be national. Now, once you start making a list of what's an essential commodity, however, that list can quickly get very open-ended indeed. And I think that what the French are going to need to think about, as we Americans do too, is how to make access to supplies that are vital for health resilient, not necessarily national. Uh, second lesson, I think uh, that um, we, in observing the cases of France and Germany, that what we can recognize is that the most vital national supply is trust. Everything that's involved in dealing with COVID, contact tracing and, and, and tracking, uh, testing, all these really depend on trust. And that's what's been sadly depleted in the French case. We now go to East Asia, where there is seemingly more trust in government leadership. Here is Yasheng Huang, the Epoch Foundation Professor of International Management at the MIT Sloan School of Management. You know, one way to think about culture um, is, uh, you know, people act on certain norms without thinking about those norms um, every day. And uh, uh, they don't question some of the assumptions. They just sort of behave out uh, without asking questions whether this is the right assumption or that uh, wrong assumption. Um, you know, so one way to sort of use this way to look at what has happened in, in China and in other parts of East Asia is that when the government um, declares a lockdown, you know, in Chinese case, it's lockdown of the entire city with 11 million people and then the province. People don't question it, right? So they, they, they implicitly believe that this is for their own good. Um, and 
you know, obviously, we, how, how do we know, right? So, so people will say this is an autocracy and, and maybe there are uh, rebellions and, and we just don't know. But I doubt that the, the, the discontent is so large uh, that uh, if, if it is so large, we would know something about it. Uh, so going back to 2018, there was a survey by a German uh, sociologist on Chinese attitude toward uh, AI and digital surveillance. And the survey shows that, uh, you know, the Chinese public actually supported the digital surveillance, uh, even though many people in the West think about it as a um, digital autocracy. Um, and, and the survey, the, the, the researcher took care to take into account uh, people may not answer their question uh, honestly. She took care of that and still shows uh, a large degree of support. So it, it is not right to attribute the ability to lock down the entire city, the lock down the entire province, solely to the coercive power of the government, even though there's a lot of that as well, right? So we, we need to acknowledge the coercive power but we also need to say that there is a cultural component in accepting the order, in accepting the, um, the government uh, policy. And, and also, to some extent, the power of the government is big, in part because of coercion, but also in part because of the acceptance. And so I'm actually working on a book on, on, on that, sort of tracing the history of culture of compliance going back to uh, thousands of years of uh, Chinese history. So there's, there's a cultural compliance and, and, and that's trust in government, trust in authority. As Susan talk, uh, talked about the lack of uh, peer trust, right? Uh, you know, French may not trust each other, but they may trust the government. Um, I think in the Chinese culture, in the East Asian culture, there's a quite a bit of trust. Uh, it, it's sometimes it's unearned, <laughs> uh, and sometimes it's not deserved. But there is that to begin with. The other cultural issue is uh, what I call habit of uh, technology, and this is related to the culture in terms of privacy, in terms of those things. So habit of technology basically says that people there automatically think about technology as a solution. It is very interesting for me, you know, I was born in China, raised in China. When I was in China, when you watch movies about sci-fi, right, so it's about future, technology is always portrayed positively, right? Solving problems, it's great future. And then I came to the United States, there's a Blade Runner, um, Black Mirror, it's a, 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 Frankenstein, so, so technology is actually portrayed very, very negatively. Um, and, and this is a little bit <laughs> problematic for those, of, for, 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 for those of us who are professors at, at, at the MIT. And, and it is really interesting how popular imagination in the United States holds technology very negatively. Whereas in China, in Asia, in South Korea, in Japan, in Singapore, you know, technology, it's by and large thought of very positively. And in part because uh, there is less concern about privacy. And uh, so this is related to the cultural point. 
but also because there is more trust in high-tech companies. And that's not what we have in the United States. There's a lot of distrust of Facebook, distrust of Google, Microsoft in the early era. Whereas in, in Asia, you know, by and large, people trust high-tech companies. Also, the government uh, has a role to play uh, because of fake data. So a lot of the technology solutions to COVID-19, like QR code to monitor your individual health, and to use Bluetooth technologies to connect you with other users of the same QR code, those are mandated by the government, right? So the technology companies supply the solution, but it is really the government that made it uh, a, a mandate to download the, the QR code. So there's implicitly trust in government as well. So I surrendered this data you know, on some sort of assumption that the government is not going to use this against me uh, in the future. I think the third thing is the, the power of the government, uh, as I said before. But the power of the government does not only rest on coercion, does not only rest on police, army, uh, although, although there's a lot of that. But if you look at, you know, the East Asian democracies, right, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, and it's not a police state, it's a vibrant democracy. People sort of comply and, and uh, with the government. Uh, so there's, it, it's the power of the government comes not just from the compulsory power of the government, but it also comes from acceptance of the power of the government. So, so that's culture, that's, that's really, it's not DNA, it's not really genetics, it's really, sort of thousands of years of history uh, and, and, and making, making it uh, um, acceptable for, for that. The last thing I want to uh, talk about related to culture is, uh, so, so Suzanne mentioned wearing masks. Um, in East Asia, uh, it is, you know, almost nobody questioned the value of wearing masks. And, and people began to wear masks very early on without the government mandate. Uh, I was in China in December 2019, and I already knew that there was something in Wuhan. Uh, and, and, but, but I didn't know the extent of the outbreak. People in Hong Kong already began to wear masks on their own in late December and early January. Just, just on their own. So look at the debate that is going on in the United States now between the, the, the politicians about wearing masks, the value of their uh, masks. It, it, it is very interesting and to some extent puzzling why, and, and, and by the way, this is true uh, even in Massachusetts. In the early days of the pandemic, what I heard was that even in mass general hospital, doctors in early March, in late February, didn't wear masks, right? These are doctors uh, and they didn't wear masks. I think this is very interesting mentality. There's a lot of questioning of the value of the, of the wearing of the mask. Rather than taking the fact that East Asians wear masks as a data point, there's a lot of questioning of that. Uh, and so, you know, more than one billion people were wearing masks. Somehow that didn't matter. And then you have to sort of figure out 
the value of the mass on their own. I, I don't quite understand that that mentality. Uh, maybe this is a culture of empiric, uh, uh, empiricism. So the, the emphasis on empirical evidence. So, so the doctors really stress that, you know, uh, uh, phase three uh, clinical trials. So there's placebo tests. Uh, you, you have to do that rather than taking observational data on their face value and say, okay, there's something to that. If one more than 1 billion people were already doing things, maybe there's something that we should do as well. So I, I think that's a difference uh, that I see, you know, that there's not this sort of constant questioning of things like wearing masks in, in Asia. The last thing I want to mention is that there's, and this is not so much culture, uh, the one big difference between Asia and Europe and the United States is that Asia experienced SARS and China experienced SARS, Hong Kong experienced SARS, Taiwan experienced SARS. And that searing experience shaped the mentality and the government approach and the public attitude toward, uh, toward the, the COVID-19. So people there understood how severe the situation was on day one, and then they behaved uh, that way. And, and, and so we, and, and this is something we know, right? So COVID-19 is about uh, biology, but it's really about behavior, how we behave. Social distancing is about behavior. Wearing masks is about behavior. And how we behave has a big impact on the disease uh, outbreak and spread. Whereas in Asia, there's already that habit already because of SARS. Finally, we have Peter Krauss, MIT PhD graduate and an associate professor of political science at Boston College. He explains how in the Middle East, and in particular Israel, Egypt, Jordan, and Lebanon, have responded so differently from their neighboring regions. First, I'll say the good news for uh, these four countries, which is, thankfully, COVID-19 has not hit the Middle East nearly as hard as any of the other countries we've heard discussed today, uh, compared to China, compared to Europe and France, compared to the United States. Um, all four of these countries have had far lower rates of cases and deaths. So if we just do some basic stats on deaths per million, um, in the United States, it's been about 362 deaths per million. In France, which Suzanne talked about, it was about 454 deaths per million. Jordan is less than one per million. Lebanon is 4.6, Egypt is 12, and Israel is 34. Even the, you know, the most deadly country, quote unquote, for coronavirus among the four is less than one-tenth of what the rate has been in the United States. So overall, these countries have been doing far better than the US and Europe and China um, in terms of this virus. And to be clear, it's not so much because of their policies. Some of it, honestly, I think is luck because of the fact that the initial outbreaks in China and then in countries like Italy you don't have, I think, as high travel internationally for a lot of the populations in these countries as you do from, say, France to Italy or the U.S. to China, et cetera. And so I think a lot of it is these countries crack down in terms of having quarantine and social distancing similar times to when the U.S. and European countries did, you know, late February, early March. The difference was when they did so, they had a far smaller number of cases. So, for example, you know, some of these countries had, you know, in the tens, you know, 20, 30 cases when they locked down in early March versus countries in Europe or elsewhere that had maybe in the hundreds or the thousands. And so that makes a big difference in terms of their effectiveness. All right, so let's just start talking about Egypt for a little bit. The thing I want to focus on with Egypt is something called the emergency law. 
Back in 1958, the Egyptian government passed a law that basically allows the executive to suspend significant amount of civil liberties, gives the government significant control and armed forces significant control over the population. And Egyptians have been living with this emergency law in various forms, you know, in the decades uh, after that. It's only been suspended a couple of times, most recently in 2012, after you had the uh, revolution in Egypt amidst the Arab Spring, but it's been reinstated in recent years. What's happened in the past year or so is that there's been 18 new amendments to the emergency law, which allows the president of Egypt, President Sisi, not just to shut down schools, universities, provide economic support to effective communities, but also to ban public and private gatherings, even without COVID-19 or other public health emergencies. Uh, the government has used some of these authorities to actually arrest journalists who have questioned Egypt's handling of the pandemic, as well as their reporting on the number of cases, the number of deaths. A lot of external reports on Egypt have suggested that the number of deaths and cases is five to 10 times as much as what the government is suggesting. And yet some of those journalists have been expelled from the country or arrested uh, because of that. And again, that's not something that's outside the realm of the government authority. They actually have those authorities under the emergency law. Um, Egypt currently does have kind of a nighttime curfew, but they're starting to resume international flights on July 1st, as are a number of countries across the Middle East, in part because Egypt has a number of economic problems. They get a lot of foreign currency from uh, tourism and travel. And so it's been very difficult for them to kind of cut off uh, the outside world in that regard. And so they're starting to reopen. The challenge is that they're doing so amidst significant political tensions. So Egypt is coming to the brink of war in its neighboring Libya with Turkey and other actors who are trying to structure uh, the Libyan government. They're also potentially not at the brink of war, but discussing the possibility of it with Ethiopia over a massive dam that Ethiopia has built on the Nile, which obviously is a key source of uh, economic um, strength for Egypt. And so all of what's going on with the pandemic, you know, feeds into these regional tensions for the country, as well as kind of these crackdowns on civil liberties, which I think unfortunately are going to outlive the pandemic itself. We see something similar in Jordan to some extent. The country locked down uh, in mid-March. Uh, at the point it had about 34 cases and no deaths. Similarly to Egypt, there's a version of kind of an emergency law that gives the king uh, some sweeping powers, which he has used. Uh, but nonetheless, there has not been significant local transmission in Jordan. Generally, Jordanians, I think, have been quite uh, receptive to kind of the general lockdown when, again, the government's had significant authority to kind of enact it. And so therefore, Jordan's had quite a low level of cases. Turning to Israel, they've had a key issue regarding the culture of civil liberties versus security. You know, Israel's a country, and if you talk to Israelis, they'll say, look, we face some of the gravest you know, military and political threats of any country. For that reason, the Israelis you know, often willingly do give up greater civil liberties to kind of protect uh, their country and themselves. And that's certainly come to the fore in the pandemic. Um, there was a pretty significant and swift response by the Israeli government, which is quite centralized. Unlike the United States, Israel does not have individual states or a federal system. It's quite centralized. And so social distancing, requirement of masks, etc., cetera, um, shutting down of synagogues and, and worship um, all occurred at various points. Um, and just to give you a quick comparison between, say, the state of Massachusetts and Israel, which are somewhat similar in size and population. Israel's got a couple million more people. Just the state of Massachusetts, where we're in here, has had about 100,000 cases and 8,000 deaths. Israel's had about 20,000 cases and 300 deaths. So again, uh, significant improvements for Israel in terms of their handling of the pandemic in terms of you know, the caseload there. 
Um, some of this has come from the fact that Israel has mobilized its intelligence assets. So not only has it mobilized the Mossad, kind of its international intelligence agency to help secure medical supplies, but also domestically, and this is one of the more controversial issues, the Shin Bet, which is an internal domestic intelligence agency, has used tracking of citizens in Israel via their cell phones to basically, I tell them via text, hey, you've been in contact with someone who has come down with COVID-19, and this is not something they signed up for. All of a sudden, they're just getting text to kind of tell them this stuff. Now, Israelis know that their intelligence services have this, but much more often it's used to track uh, Palestinians in the West Bank, et cetera. There hasn't been that much resistance to this domestically because people felt like maybe this is gonna be a temporary thing, but the Israeli Supreme Court did step in and crack down and say, look, you have to pass a law in the Knesset if you're gonna continue this practice. So um, that's been somewhat tabled because the number of cases it was dissipating. And so the government felt like, okay, we don't really have to put this into a law, but just today, just yesterday, Israel had its largest spike in cases in Batyam, which is a little uh, city kind of south of uh, Tel Aviv, and in Um al-Faham, which is one of the largest Arab cities in the country. And so in that sense, they might have to come to grips with, again, this idea of civil liberties and to what extent people want to give those up to get more security or health. Finally, just briefly in terms of Lebanon, um, Lebanon is actually one of the earliest countries to crack down in the world. After China and Italy, uh, Lebanon cracked down at the very end of February when they only had a few cases, they closed schools, and it's one of the few things the Lebanese government has done incredibly well. Um, very small number of cases, hasn't had significant spikes, etc. The problem is, leading up to the pandemic, Lebanon has had massive economic collapse. Uh, the currency's lost about 70% of its value. There's about 35% unemployment in the country. And those of you who are watching from MIT, if you want a comparison, the American University of Beirut, which is in many ways the gem of education in the Middle East, um, is facing 25% layoffs of all faculty and staff. Um, they are facing you know, all of these challenges and all of this is going through the lens of sectarianism. The AUB president said, the poison in the American constitution was slavery, the poison in the Lebanese constitution is sectarianism, basically the idea that the government is organized around these various ethnic groups. There have been massive protests in Lebanon over the past months and years trying to change the corruption in the government. And so all of this with the pandemic is happening against the backdrop of economic collapse, political upheaval, and that is changing the culture in Lebanese society amidst the pandemic. Thank you to Andrea Orji and Ayumakun Ayodiji. Also thanks to Professor Suzanne Berger, Professor Yasheng Huang, and Professor Peter Krauss. MISTI Radio is a project from MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. It is produced in collaboration with me, Sanaya Sampson-Hill, Ari Jakobowitz, Eduardo Rivera, Justin Leahy, Marco de Paula, Noreen Das, and Rosabelli Coelho Quesar. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.